0: I want to ask you to take your Bibles with me and open them to the Gospel of Luke chapter 18, verse 31. Gospel of Luke chapter 18, verse 31. Verse 31, Luke is writing about our Lord and He says, And taking the twelve but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said." Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I come to this moment, this point in time, this morning, reflecting on everything that we've sung singing that You have paid the cost. You've paid it all. You've met the requisite. You've met the requirements, the, the need for our salvation. This last chorus that we just sang, what a, what a love, what a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. And I'm just in awe. And I feel a sense of being humbled, God. I have a sense of Your greatness. A small sense of what that cost was like. I am captive to wonder. To stand in wonder at what kind of love must occupy your heart to look at sinful things Men and women and long to die for them that they may be freed and forgiven. That's what we've sung about. That's what we've reflected upon. That's what we've prayed about. And that's now what we come to consider from Your Word. That You went up to Jerusalem with a purpose. That purpose was to die. Our whole faith is found in these few verses, Lord. And you're sharing them with the twelve, and by extension, you're sharing them with us for a purpose, for a reason, that our hearts might be changed by these words, by this truth, that we might be affected by them. Protect us this morning from just intellectual assent, from just merely agreeing with the facts. Let our hearts be moved by You. Jesus, we haven't earned Your favor this morning. As we were praying with the worship team earlier today, remembering we haven't earned Your goodness towards us. We haven't lived faithfully enough this week to earn Your your presence or Your grace shown towards us, that's just coming straight from Your heart. We pray that in this moment in time, nothing else would matter. That we would see the the importance of opening Your Word together and having Your Spirit apply the truth of Scripture to our lives. And we would see that as such a a blessed picture of grace, a gift of Your mercy that we wouldn't take it lightly. It's not for eloquent speech this morning that our hearts need to be gripped. It's for what Your Word plainly says. That our hearts need to be compelled to You. Engage our minds, Lord, yes, but also transform our hearts. May each word this morning give you glory. May each soul today be thrilled with you. May every distraction or wondering thought melt away in the sight of such glorious realities. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to begin this morning actually how I had planned to end. And that's with a quote from a man named Jonathan Edwards. Some of you know him. He is widely regarded as America's greatest theologian. He was pastoring in Northampton, New England, really at the time of the birth of our nation. Uh, Largely uh, involved in the country's first and second great awakenings. Big moments of revival in our nation's history. And he's written many books, but one in particular that I'm reading right now has this quote at the end of the first chapter that I think is fitting for us to begin with. It's a book called The Religious Affections. And at the end of that first chapter, he's highlighting and asking this question, how is it possible that people can be so passionate and affected by things of the world like their finances and their careers and sports and on and on and on. But when it comes to things of God, their hearts aren't affected. They're cold and they're callous and they're careless. And so I want to read this rather long paragraph to you from the end of his first chapter. It's written in older styles of literature, but it's worth the read and the time. So try to get at least the gist of what Edwards is saying. Again, this is in contrast to how passionate people can be about worldly things. And now he begins to speak about godly things. He says, how insensible and unmoved are most men about the great things of another world. That other world being heaven. How dull are their affections. And by affections, Edwards is meaning desire and emotion He says, how heavy and hard their hearts are in these matters. Here, their love is cold, their desires languid, their zeal low, and their gratitude small. How they can sit and hear of the infinite height and depth and length and breadth of the love of God in Christ Jesus, of His giving His infinitely dear Son to be offered up a sacrifice for the sins of men, and how they can hear of the unparalleled love of the innocent and holy and tender Lamb of God manifested in His dying agonies, His bloody sweat, His loud and bitter cries and bleeding heart, and how He did all of this for enemies to redeem them from deserved and eternal burnings, and to bring them to unspeakable and everlasting joy and glory, and yet they can be cold and heavy and insensible and regardless in their hearts towards such things? Where are the exercises of our affections proper if not here? What he's saying there in that, in my opinion, beautifully written paragraph is how can men and women sit and hear of the infinitely glorious truths of Christ giving His life for sinners and be unaffected by that? And in the, the grand scheme of the, the last half of that chapter is, how can they become so passionate and how can they, their emotions be so stirred at worldly things and not even more so at godly things? How can men and women Read of the cross of Christ. And plainly, simply put, not become emotional about it. Not become affected in their core. And then that last sentence, that last question that he asked, where are the exercises of, exercises of our affections proper if not here? Where, where are we to be emotional if not in the face of Christ dying for sinners? I share that quote Because we come to a passage of scripture this morning. That ought to affect our hearts. It ought to stir up emotion within us. It ought to stir up zeal within our hearts. Adoration for Christ. Passion for the things of God. It ought to move us deeply. All that to say, if you come to today's text, Luke 18 verses 31 through 34 and just have this mental agreement with them as if they're just this state of facts given by Jesus, and your heart's not changed, you've missed the point of the passage. The whole intent of Luke including this passage in his Gospel is for us as his readers to be moved by what Jesus is saying here. Because we have in these verses one of the clearest displays of love given to us from the mouth of Christ. Jesus has a lot to say about God's love. And this might be one of the most powerful pictures of it in all that He has to say. This text also teaches us that Christ's life was lived with one purpose in mind. Our Lord had one mission on His heart in coming to earth and and taking on human flesh. And that commitment, as we find in this passage of Scripture, is unmatched. The devotion of Christ to go to Jerusalem is glorious, divine, and significant. As I was thinking through these verses this week, I thought, this is the purpose-driven death. In contrast to Rick Warren's book, The Purpose-Driven Life, Christ lived for a purpose-driven death. He he's deliberate in his life for this point what he's describing in these verses. His life is directed, his life is pre-planned out for him. It's prepared so that verses 31 through 34 might be realized and fulfilled and and true. This is the heartbeat of Jesus. These verses right here which tells us that Christ even lived a desirous life. A life that was desirous of Jerusalem. And what we mean by that is a life that's desirous of death. That's a profound statement. That's a significant remark. Jesus didn't just die. He desired to die. And He didn't desire to die in a suicidal sort of fashion. He desired to die for a purpose and that purpose is you. You. And so because of a passage like this, we can't come to it with callous. We can't come to it just intellectually. We have to come to it with our hearts laid bare before it and asking, Lord, will you please take the truths of these verses and put them in here? And thinking through these verses again, I wrote down what I... I would hope the goal would be of of these few verses, and I think the goal should be this, that the text would reveal to us how deep the love of God is for sinners and in turn transform us to be people who adore Him, who are devoted to Him, and who are dedicated to sharing the very Gospel message He so dearly loves Himself. I hope to achieve that goal by highlighting four things from this text. The first one being in verse 31 alone. And it is this, that the Lord's death fulfilled Scripture. The Lord's death fulfilled Scripture. As I've already said, His death was planned long, long ago. Long before He was born of a virgin. Which tells us that the essence of the work and ministry and person of Jesus cannot be understood apart from the plan of His death. It's the culmination of everything that He's lived for, everything that He's taught, everything that he's, he's done. In verse 31, we find Him taking the twelve disciples aside and issuing to them His third prediction of death. Most people hold it to be His third prediction. Some would say it's... it's um more than three predictions in the Gospel of Luke up to this point, but we know for sure He's, he's foretelling these events that are coming uh, in the near future. And He's telling them specifically to the twelve. The small, focused, reserved group of individuals. And He's preparing them. I want you to be ready for what's happening. Verse 31, He says, we are going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Again, that's more than just an itinerary. That's more than just letting them know where they're going to walk and the direction they're headed in general and where the end goal is. Jesus is saying a lot when He says we're going to Jerusalem. He's saying we're going to my death. Because Jerusalem is the culmination point of all of redemptive history. It's the pinnacle of redemption. The pinnacle of salvation. As I said, this has been the, the desire of the Lord's heart for a very long time, but in this prediction in verse 31, in this foretelling, this preparation, we find this indication of it being near. It's an increased drive to be in Jerusalem. The time is coming, in other words, where we're drawing near to the end the final week, the final moments, we're getting ever closer. Every step Christ has taken up to this point has led to this. Everything we've studied in the Gospel of Luke is leading to this point described in verse 31. Every healing, every casting out of a demon, every, every teaching, every encounter, every conversation has, has been building to verse 31 so that verse 31 would be true. True. We're drawing near to Jerusalem. It makes me think of Galatians chapter 4 where this precision timeline is introduced to us. God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. In the beginning of Galatians 4, verse 4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God did all these things. There was this predetermined timeline of events for Jesus' life and we're drawing near to this predetermined time of His Death, we're getting close, is what He's saying. Our Lord did much, much, much good while He was living on earth. But make no mistake, His whole life was built around the goal of the cross. And to separate that from His life is to reduce Him to an undesirable point. He looks to these twelve, taking them aside, And he says it's almost time. This this passage is meant to elevate our understanding of where we're at in the life of Christ in Luke's Gospel. We've been walking through a lot of glorious passages, but we're right here, as of this verse, this text, we're right on the cusp of the cross. That's what He means when He says we're going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is is the cross. And He explicitly says in the end of verse 31, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Again, Jerusalem is the culmination point of redemption. And all that's been foretold about the Son of Man, all that's been foretold about the Messiah is going to find its fulfillment here in His death. Here at the cross. Now Jesus doesn't mention an explicit Old Testament text, but rather he gives this a general broad view. Everything that the prophets have said will be accomplished. He doesn't mention one specific thing because the Old Testament is full of prophecies about Jesus going to the cross. It implies that as it talks about our redemption and sin being forgiven and a sacrifice being offered. If you want to know more about that, just read the book of Hebrews. Hebrews. It expounds on all of these Old Testament principles and doctrines and shows how they're fulfilled in Christ. But there are other specific texts talking about Jesus going to the cross. You think of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The very beginning of sin and very first picture of Christ going to the cross and dying. Where God is pronouncing the consequences to the serpent in the garden. And He says, there's going to be one... Seed of woman who's going to crush your head and you will bruise His heel. We we come to know that as speaking of Jesus dying. There are other texts, Psalm chapter 22, where Christ Himself quotes that on the cross and it's a clear picture of His dying, but perhaps there is no clearer picture of Jesus' suffering than Isaiah 53. If you will, take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 53. This is not just one of the most popular pictures of of the suffering of Jesus, but also one of the most powerful. And it is worth our reading this morning. This section in Isaiah's book is known as the suffering servant section because it's a theme that's repeated often. God is going to send this servant and the servant is going to suffer on behalf of the people. And there's this pinnacle chapter, Isaiah 53, where it becomes so abundantly clear to you and I who are born again that this is undoubtedly Jesus. We could back up into chapter 52, verse 13, and and most people will. We're not going to. We're going to start in chapter 53, verse 1 and read the whole chapter. And I I want these words to sink into your heart this morning. Isaiah 53, verse 1 and He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because He poured out His soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors." That's undoubtedly Christ. It's undoubtedly Jesus. And it's a a passage of Scripture that is packed full of the profound love and desire of Christ To offer Himself for us. And that's what Jesus is talking about in Luke chapter 18, verse 31. All these prophecies are going to be fulfilled. Isaiah 53 is about to be fulfilled. For I will bear the iniquity of many. And I will make them righteous. And I will intercede on their behalf. What a glorious picture. And Jesus knows full well what He's saying in verse 31. He knows full well what He's alluding to. On top of all of that, we also have this other understanding that comes from verse 31. When Jesus highlights that these prophecies are about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem, He's telling us something more about His death. He's telling us that ultimately, His death in Jerusalem on the cross is orchestrated by none other than God Himself. For who else could give the prophecies? Who else could make them come true? God is the designer of the cross of Christ. If you go back to Isaiah 53, verse 10, we we find this wonderful statement. Again, verse 10, it says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him, He has put him to grief. Acts chapter 2. Verse 23 and 24, Peter's preaching his first sermon since being filled with the Holy Spirit. His first sermon at at Pentecost. And then chapter 2, verse 23, we've read this Scripture before and highlighted it. Peter says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That's verse 24. But we've highlighted verse 23 before. There's this this tension in that verse, right? Peter looks at the people in in Jerusalem and he says, you crucified Jesus and you, you delivered Him over and you killed Him by the hands of lawless men. But he also says in that verse, he was delivered up by the definite plan of God. There's this tension in the Scriptures where humanity is responsible for the death of Jesus as we will consider in a moment. And yet, every detail of His death was according to the definite plan of God. Not the wish-washy plan. Not the half-hearted plan. Not the... First Plan A and Second Plan B. It was the definite, unwavering, unchangeable, in inobstructible plan of of God. The will of God to crush Jesus for us. What does all of that say? What is what is verse thirty one screaming to us? Screaming that ultimately, it was God who initiated, planned, and completed the death of Christ. And that you and I are to never think that Jesus was captured and forced to be crucified against His will. But that ultimately, He was the architect of His own death. And that church is the clearest display of love to us. Verse 31 is this loud declaration, this glaring reality of the deep, divine, unshakable love of God for sinners and ultimately for them to be redeemed. For Christ is saying, Jerusalem is drawing near. And by the way, that's been the whole plan the entire time from of old. There are prophecies that will finally be fulfilled in the culmination of the cross. This is God's plan, His delight, his desire. What does that say to us about the love of God? Because as, as Jonathan Edwards said in that quote, he said it so so beautifully, all of this for even enemies. It's not that Christ goes to the cross because he thinks he needs you on his team. Or that you offer Him some something He just can't live without. Or you make Him more glorious or more loving or more beautiful. None of that is the case. The pure motivation for the cross is love for sinners who are opposite of the will of God. Wholeheartedly against the law of God. Rebellious to the very core of their being. Oh, this is, this is love beyond what we can show. It's love beyond what we can understand and fathom, but it's love that we can most certainly, most certainly experience. The fact that love is the motivation of the cross is seen in other places in the New Testament. Romans chapter 8. Not not chapter 8, it's chapter 5, verse 8. It's really chapter 5, verse 6, 7, and 8. We've, we highlight these verses often as well. In verse 6, Paul writes, he says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. There's that, that time language again that, that is also playing a part in verse 31. We are now going to Jerusalem. There's a timeline here. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. And then verse 8, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, all scriptures inspired and breathed out by God, and every word is precisely accurate just as God would have it. And there's so much going on at the cross. There's mercy, there's justice, there's wrath, there's victory. And Paul highlights none of that in verse 8. What does he highlight? Love as the motivating factor. God shows His power to us in sending Christ. Well, that's true. God shows His victory over sin and evil in sending Christ. That's true, but that's not what Paul says. He says He shows His love for us. In sending Christ. The Apostle John will remember this quite clearly. And in chapter 3 verse 16. Give the most famous summary of the gospel. In all of scripture. For God so loved the world. He gave his only son. Again it's not anything else. It's not God was so desirous of victory. He gave his only Son. God was so powerful, He gave His only Son. God hated sin so much, He gave His only Son. All of those are true statements, but that's not what John writes. He said, God so loved the world. Love is this resounding theme of the character of God throughout Scripture because the cross is this glaring picture of the kind of love God has the motivation behind willingly offering His life, the motivation behind being the architect of His own death was to display a love that the world has never known before. Therefore, we can say the purpose-driven death of Jesus was to love sinful humanity and provide a way of salvation for them. And a text like this ought to, as Edward says, stir up affections within us and emotions within us. How many people in the world live devoid of love and chasing after it at all costs? They get into immoral relationships. They get into abusive relationships because they're wanting to be loved. How many children live in the world today without a mom and without a dad and all they desire in this life is to experience love? How many marriages are breaking apart every single day because their spouse can't love them like they need to be and want to be loved? And here is God at the cross declaring without any doubt, I love you. And I can meet every need of love in your life. Don't run to anything else to try to satisfy this desire for love in your soul. Look to Christ and be moved by passages such as this. We have to get out of the first verse, so let's move on. Verse 32 and 33. We first come to consider that His death fulfilled Scripture. Now we come to consider that His death was completely foreknown by Him. And those are so closely related, but I'm trying to say two separate things here. In verse 32 and 33, Jesus highlights seven details surrounding His death. We're going to look at the first six first, and all six of them are negative. First, you'll find in verse 32, He says, He will be delivered over to Gentiles that is totally referring to Rome. That's what the disciples would have thought of immediately because they were occupied by Rome. At every corner, they're finding Roman soldiers. Every day, they're paying Roman taxes. Every week, they're hearing about more Roman oppression. And so their minds would have immediately went to, uh, upon hearing Gentiles, hearing uh, thinking of of Rome, and and their minds might have lingered even to the cross. And by the end of verse 33, it's certainly going to linger to the cross because that's how the Romans dealt with Jews when they killed them. They killed them via the cross. Almost as a sport. Jesus is saying here to these guys, I'm going to be handed over to Gentiles. I'm going to be handed over to Rome. Which tells us Jesus knows what lies ahead and He knows He will not be judged by godly people, but by pagan people. That extends even into the religious leaders, though. It's people who are devoid of all things godly. I'm going to be given over into their hands. In fact, I'm going to be given over into the hands of people who don't even believe in the existence of God. So I won't be held under God's law. Instead, Jesus will be subjected to injustice, to opinion, and ultimately to false witness. It's here we begin to see that although the cross is the architectural plan of God, it's also the responsibility of humanity. I'll be delivered into the hands of these Gentiles, and they will be the ones who crucify me. But not just them, it will also be the religious leaders who falsely hand me over to them. And as we survey all of Scripture, it's all of humanity that's responsible for the cross. For all of humanity has sinned. And therefore, the cross is necessary for humanity's salvation. And Jesus is saying here, I'll be handed, delivered over into the hands of Gentiles to be killed He's also saying He'll be delivered over into our hands to be killed. Number two, He says I'll be mocked. Which I take to at least allude to that He'll be emotionally taunted and ridiculed. I've wondered why why does Christ mention some of these things? They're almost given and they're not necessarily Necessary for uh, our redemption. The fact that he was mocked, how much weight does that bear in securing our atonement? So, what exactly is he saying in highlighting this? I think it's him saying, I'm going to be publicly humiliated for you, publicly shamed, emotionally isolated. No one will stand in his defense. There have been people who have prior to this point, but when it comes to being in Jerusalem at the cross, no one will stand to defend Jesus. No one will advocate for Him to have a fair trial. In this mocking, I think He's saying, I will be found alone. Those very crowds who chanted what we sang this morning, Hosanna, Hosanna. They're not only going to forsake Him, they're going to turn on Him. They'll leave Him alone. They'll chant, crucify Him, crucify Him. And in such hostility, there'll be no shoulder to lean on. In fact, most people who follow Him will scatter at the moment of His arrest and imprisonment. The disciples fit that description. They will flee. Even to the point where Peter denies Him, he stands... Solitarily alone. Number three. He says, I will be shamefully treated. Your Bible might translate it, I will be treated abusively. Or wrongly, illegally. Justice is out the window. All of His rights that we as Americans cling to so so tightly all of His rights will be totally discarded. They don't care about His rights. As a human being, they don't care about His rights. His very humanity is going to be ignored and neglected. Ultimately, His innocence will be ignored. Just as Isaiah 53 said, and as 1 Peter will say later, He didn't speak an ounce of deceit from His mouth. He didn't sin in any way. Even Pilate will stand and say, I I don't find any fault in this guy whatsoever. And yet, in spite of that, they ignore his innocence and condemn him to death. He'll be shamefully treated because no evidence will be brought to bear against him. No mercy will be extended to him. But again, that's all by God's plan, isn't it? Jesus has rejected mercy and justice so that he can secure mercy and justice. Number four, he identifies in verse 32, he'll be spit upon. Which I wonder, why are you including that in the list? If not to say that you'll be socially disrespected. And I think even further than that, you'll be enticed to retaliate. You'll be pressured to respond sinfully. His whole trial, His whole imprisonment, they're trying to get Jesus to blaspheme. There's this social pressure. Number 5, verse 33, He'll be flogged. He'll be physically abused beyond necessity. Beaten over and over and over. He'll lose a lot of blood in that moment. He'll lose a lot of flesh in that moment. Have a lot of bone exposed in that moment. It's this realization that His suffering begins long before the nails in the wood. Finally, number six, it will all reach its pinnacle when they will kill Him. He'll offer up His life. This description tells us that He's not going to pass sweetly into the night, is He? He's going to die via the most torturous, gruesome death that human history has known that the Romans could invent. The cross was so horrific that it was illegal for a Roman citizen to be crucified. The cross was reserved for the lowest humans of society. Jews. Ultimately, he'll be found drowning in his own blood. This doesn't only show the terrible nature of sin, And it doesn't only show God's infinite hatred towards sin. Again, it shows the infinite love of the Savior to endure such things as this on our behalf. Things far beyond necessity. He's delivered into the hands of people who don't care a thing about Him. And could care less if He dies. And that's right where He wants to be. In verse 32 and 33, there's this glaring fact that also stands out. Jesus knows every detail of what awaits Him in Jerusalem. And He goes with unwavering dedication. Why is He sharing all these details in these two verses? Why not just say, I'm going to Jerusalem to be crucified? Everybody pretty much would have got the picture in their mind of how gruesome it was going to be. But no, he says He says there's going to be more. Pagans are going to be in charge of me. I'm going to be mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, flogged, then I'll die. Christ is declaring to you and I, I will know every detail of what awaits me. No moment of pain will come as a surprise. No moment of injustice will catch me off guard and my commitment to it is unwavering. I don't know about you guys that that realization shames me significantly. Because how often do I get bored with religious things? How often do I get tired of reading or praying? if I could only have an ounce of the commitment that Christ had for me. This is a precise knowledge, church. A precise knowledge of what Jerusalem holds for Him. And again, it's all because He has this divine love for us at our worst. that we might be forgiven, that we might find life. I summarized it like this in my notes. Jesus knows and He still goes. Number three in verse 33. His victory was certain. At this point and maybe like you and I should be feeling this morning the 12 disciples would have been very confused and somewhat disheartened. They're confused because I mean after all they've seen Jesus do some awesome stuff up to this point. In Luke's gospel alone we've we've seen that. He's an amazing teacher like nobody's ever heard. He's got power over even water to turn it into wine creation to still a storm, He casts out vast amounts of demons. He heals vast amounts of diseases. Diseases that are impossible for anybody else to deal with. He makes the unclean clean. He softens the heart of the prideful religious leaders like Nicodemus. He's endured numerous variations of hostility. And now He's saying I'm going to be flogged? I mean, the twelve are probably thinking out of all that we know of you, Jesus, what can Rome do to you? What can the high priest do to you? They've never displayed power like you have before. They've never displayed control like you have before. What do you mean flogged and mocked and killed? Well, Jesus makes it clear to them that Jerusalem is not a defeat. Jerusalem is a victory. I might endure the mocking and and the shamefully treated behavior of these pagan Gentiles, and I I will be spit upon, and I will be flogged, and, and I will be crucified, but death has no final word on me. With as much confidence and as much detail, he says, on the third day, I will rise. Don't let Jerusalem get you down. Jerusalem is the victory. Jerusalem is where Christ wins because death is not the end for Him. It's the beginning of a glorious triumph over sin, evil, Satan. And as such, it's our win. It's our glorious triumph in Him. Our hearts weigh heavy because of the reality of what Christ is going to suffer at the cross as He's describing right here. But there's also joy that wells up within us when He says, On the third day, I will rise. I will satisfy God's wrath of justice towards sin. I will earn the validation and vindication of God. I will raise on your behalf. Romans 4.25 He was delivered up for our transgressions and He was raised for our justification. Jerusalem is the victory. That's why we can never proclaim the Gospel and simultaneously leave out the resurrection. Because the resurrection is everything to the Gospel. Our hearts weigh heavy hearing about these things, but we come to the end and we say, Victory is in the hand of Christ. Yeah, they think they're going to win when they mock you and shamefully treat you and spit upon you and flog you and kill you, but you will be the victor. Jerusalem is the goal, the purpose, and the mission so that Christ would resurrect. Finally, we come to verse 34. Which is a great way to end in a, a very fascinating verse. Verse 34 They, the 12, understood none of these things. It doesn't necessarily surprise us. It's not the first time that they've not understood what Jesus was talking about. There were many times, and there still will be a few times. After all, they don't have the indwelling new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit. But this statement is much more than just ignorance. Because you go on to see the language Luke uses in verse 34, he says, this saying was hidden from them. And they did not grasp what was said. They were prevented from understanding. God did not permit them to know what Jesus was saying. And why is my question. And I think it's because God is protecting the plan. Nothing nothing ever thwarts God's plans and purposes. But by His grace, He makes it where we can't intervene and and reap the repercussions from that. Because there's been another time when Jesus spoke of His cross and Peter understood what He was saying and said, far be it from Me, Lord, that you're going to be arrested and crucified and handed over to Gentiles? And what did Jesus have to say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're talking about. I think with Peter's zeal and the disciples' desire this far out from the cross, maybe they would have thought, how can we keep Jesus from going to Jerusalem? How can we orchestrate it where we can protect Him while He's in Jerusalem? How can we get between Him and the cross? We want to lay down our lives for our Lord. But Jesus will not be stopped. So these guys are prevented from hearing and understanding and seeing so that Jesus might accomplish His singular purpose for being here. Oh, I would say we should never underestimate God's desire to save. And ultimately, while it was hidden from them, praise God, it's not hidden from us today. It didn't stay hidden from them long. After His resurrection, it came flooding back. They began to realize what He was saying what He meant. For you and I today, we can step back right now and say, I realize what He's saying. I realize what He, what he means. He's doing all of this that I might be forgiven of sin. Is doing all of this that I might be saved. That's why the author of Hebrews can write in chapter 12. I have to to flip over there and read this one to you. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Talking about Jesus, this verse describes Him as the founder and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ has joy to run to Jerusalem. Why? Because He knows what the result will be. The redemption of sinners. That's why I would begin by saying, what more powerful... Clear display of divine love can there be? Jesus makes it so clear I'm going to Jerusalem to die and resurrect, and solely because I want to save sinners. If a text like this has not touched your heart, that's your fault. If your heart isn't stirred to adore Christ, if your heart isn't stirred to to be humbled before Him, if emotion hasn't welled up within you, then you wasted your time. A text like this transforms us, church. We realize the commitment and love and desire of Christ, and we want to reciprocate it back. We want to respond to Him in faith if we're an unbeliever. And say, I see the truth of what you're saying, Jesus, and I want that salvation. As Christians, those of us who are already born again, are we not left in awe that every detail can be firmly held in His mind and His heart and He still says, I willingly go. I willingly lay down my life. should be stirred to devotion, to evangelism, to commitment. Sometimes I wish... I wish two things, really. Sometimes I wish I could communicate a week's worth of study and impact in 45 minutes, 50 minutes. But that's the Spirit's work. As much as I may labor... The other wish is that I could put it into your hearts. That I could take a stamp of the text and spiritually speaking, push it deep into your soul. Again, that's the Spirit's work. The glory of that is the Spirit will do that work if we humble ourselves before Him. Don't miss an opportunity of understanding Christ's infinite love to go to the cross for sinners. Don't get bored with a passage like this. This is everything for us. This is why we're here. This is why we do what we do. This is why we live like we live. Because that truth has touched our hearts. And it should be the same for you this morning. Unbeliever, be saved. Believer, be transformed. Realize the commitment of Christ and be just as committed back. Lord I I don't really know what to say at this point other than just please do something that only you can do. Oh how I would plead with you and and beg you to change each and every one of us based upon this Truth. How different we would be. How different our church would be if this seriously impacted our hearts. I can't see into people's hearts this morning, Lord. I wish I I could for a moment. I don't know if this truth has resonated with them or not. but it remains my earnest desire, my sincere plea that we would be a people marked by not just an intellectual understanding, but a heart understanding of this very truth. You set Your gaze to Jerusalem for us. You knew what every strike of the flogging event would entail. You knew every sensation of pain. Every drop of sweat. Every strand of DNA in the spit on your face. You knew the intentions and the motives and the heart of every person who mocked you. You knew every drop of blood that left your body. Every sensation of pain from the nails. You knew that death was inevitable. You tasted and knew what it would taste like to have life leave your body. And all for us. Oh, how You would treat us like You did Thomas. You would present Yourself in our hearts and say, here, stick your finger in the holes in my hands. And here, stick your hand in my side. Don't disbelieve, but believe. Lord, would You make that declaration to us today? Help us not to disbelieve, but to believe. You showed such desire and such diligence to accomplish Your purpose. Such love that we can find nowhere else. Let it weigh upon our hearts and minds this morning. For Your glory, in Jesus' name, Amen.